breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for being here. Hope you're all doing well. And uh, as I've always told you, this is the place where you can come to hear about the topics that the mainstream media, the legacy media, just won't cover. As our country goes through a major transition between administrations, a lot of changes going on, and especially about the threat of radical Islam, about the threat of Islamist terrorism, a threat that nobody seems to want to talk about. But yet, when you look at threat assessments globally, maybe not domestically, but globally, it's still number one, two, three, and four when it comes to various Islamist groups. And domestically, obviously, I think it follows from that. But yet, somehow we seem to be focused elsewhere. And it's not just about the threat of radical terror, but actually also where is where are Muslim majority? Where is the Muslim movement, if you will, going? Is it going continuing towards theocracy or is it going towards reform? And this is the place where we talk about the latest issues of the day. This weekend, I'm sure all of you celebrated Valentine's Day, as my wife and I do. It's our anniversary. Got married on Valentine's Day just because that Saturday happened to occur on President's Day weekend. And it was the time I was able to get leave from the Navy in order to get married. And I'm always, you know, I always think about it in this in reference to this program because Valentine's Day is prohibited to be celebrated in Saudi Arabia or Iran. God forbid human beings express love, intimacy, and passion publicly. They can't discuss these things. It's haram or forbidden, as they'd say in Islam. And I have to tell you, I think it sort of is a, as we say in medicine, pathic mnemonic or one symptom that demonstrates the deeper pathology of the entire disease, which is the inability to be publicly open about things that are naturally human. Normal, westernized, modern Muslims who are reformed are comfortable in expressing their passion, comfortable in expressing the fact that a man and woman who fall in love and get married would want to celebrate a Valentine's Day and that love is something that is very uniquely, uh, uniquely, genuinely human. Yes, it's not only human. We see in all different species a sense of devotion to family that we see. You know, one of the things actually that we're going to talk about in one of the upcoming episodes is sort of the Islamic feelings about dogs. Yes, the Islamists, the Salafis prevent and prohibit having a dog in your house because they fear, they say that it is nijis or unsanitary. And, and, and that word is not just about unsanitary, but that it, it is religiously unsanitary, dirty. I had a dog when I was young. So many of us Muslim reformers have dogs and others who may not claim to be Muslim reformers, but yet do, I think, are beginning to look at that. And I think there's something pathognomonic about that. But back to Valentine's Day. 
it's, I think, very, very revealing to the pathologies that exist and the misogyny of the culture that is Saudi Arabia. And it's just now beginning to address some of the things that relate to the inequality of men and women, the, uh, the obstacles from them seeking equal employment, equal pay, equal freedom of movement, respect. Because if love is truly an equality of passion between man and woman, then society should reflect that. And if you can't reflect that, if your society is based on a misogynistic interpretation of a dominant faith, such as in Saudi Arabia, then you can't recognize Valentine's Day. And you'll find reasons, you'll find excuses to say that, oh, it's a way to oppress women, it's it's a denigration of a of an hypersexual society that on and on the same justifications that they give for forcing women into wearing hijab, wearing burqas and other aspects of controlling their bodily autonomy. And to more modern free thinkers, some of the greatest, most beautiful poetry, Arabic included, by the way, is about love and passion. So their suppression of Valentine's Day is more about the men with beards and robes who want to control society than it is about humanity, than it truly is about caring about values and morality and ethics. Because you can do both. And you can actually make the, I think, the most convincing argument that a, a culture that suppresses a public expression of the importance of love and passion and intimacy in our music and our art and otherwise is a culture that then is doomed to have other pathologies. And thus we see also in, in the Muslim-majority countries significant repression of discussion of psychiatric illness, of depression, of anxiety, and other things that they pretend don't exist. People can't even discuss that they went to see a therapist, that they went to see a counselor. And thus you have suicides that go unrecognized, untreated, and compounding pathologies. But that's why we have this program, right? So that we can talk about these things, so that we can begin to realize that Islamism, or political Islam, a culture dominated by theocrats who want to control society, will bring with it a whole host of pathologies. Yes, you can, you can make the argument that along with freedom comes other pathologies comes the challenge of those who want to be decadent, who want to exploit sexuality and other things. But that's part of the freedom to, as we've talked about in Reformation, Western Enlightenment demonstrated that if a person's relationship with God is truly individual and God will judge them, then you must live in a laboratory in which God knows that you can sin or not. God knows that you have the freedom to sin, so therefore you are making a choice rather than the government coercing you into not having any choices. And thus it's really not you choosing God or the morality. It's basically living in a sanitized, abhorrently rigid society. So the capacity to love with honor, to love with true honor, not the honor of the Islamists, but honor of humanity and humility and being genuine. 
is I think the beauty of Valentine's Day, and my wife and I recognize that every year and are reminded in our anniversary of the beauty of marriage and love and dedication and devotion and the hard work that goes in with that, as in all our relationships. Now, the Biden administration is almost a month into its adventure, if you will, and they were presented as an administration that supposedly the Biden candidacy was about moderation, about a middle-of-the-road Democrat who really, yeah, he might be part of the establishment, but was able to bring everybody with him, not just the establishment Democrats, the Clintonistas and others, but the progressives and the Bernie Sanders types and others. That somehow he was a coalition-type Democrat, a, a, a candidate that had been tried and tested through the House and then through the Senate for, for decades. And he sort of quickly rose to the top as part of this coalition builder. But now we're starting to see some of his appointments. And I have to tell you from where I sit, it seems like he's a Trojan horse that ultimately what better Trojan horse could there be than a candidate that presents himself as moderate and constantly already we are getting a bit nauseated with some of the, the messaging that's so, yes, they want it to be motherhood and apple pie and all about peace and love. And you saw this week Dr. Jill Biden surprising, supposedly surprising her husband with a Valentine's card on the lawn of the White House. But it's deflections, I think. I have to tell you, I think it's a veneer. As Biden himself is checked out, as he is checked out, they are allowing the appointments, the legislative input the policy input, and the frontline soldiers of his movement to be far, far different from what was presented, to be far different from the so-called moderate coalition of the left that was elected. And this is, forget the conservatives. I mean, we're having a cultural conversation in America about sort of unity, etc., when all they're really talking about is unity on the left. We're not really seeing any unity after the unprecedented, unprecedented onslaught of executive orders that dismantled every aspect of the last four years of policy, whether it had to do with national security, Middle East peace, or otherwise. Now President Biden is trying to dismantle that as quickly as possible with every executive order he can do, having signed, I think, over 40, far, far dwarfing anything any other president has done before him. But that's not the, that's not even the, the, the crux of it as far as what I mean by Trojan horse. What I mean by Trojan horse is that we are seeing the empowerment of Islamists in positions of influence like we've never seen before. What do I mean by that? All you need to do is look at the lens through which 
these executive orders and selections of staff are being done. And the brilliant Steve Postal has a good review of this at the American Spectator in a report and, and uh, a piece titled Biden's Appointments Could Destroy Middle East Peace. Opens by saying, blunders abound for the Biden administration's Middle East policy. In a gratuitous windfall to Iran, the administration has announced it will stop funding Saudi involvement in the Yemeni civil war and will remove the Houthis, Iran-backed proxies in Yemen, from the foreign terrorist organization and specialty designation global terrorist lists. In a move that will enable anti-Israel bias in international forums, the Biden administration announced that it will rejoin the UN Human Rights Council. I mean, every step they are re-enabling the Islamists. And it seems to always side with Iran, with the Islamist militants, whether it's the Houthis or the Hamas on the Sunni side. Do you know that to this day, unprecedented, President Biden has yet to call Prime Minister Netanyahu as an introductory call in the beginning of a relationship between presidents. Now you may say, well, what does that mean? There's hundreds of presidents. Well, look at the history. As Adam Credo uh, talks about this week, it is uh, un unprecedented that he has not done so. And clearly this is coming from, you know, this is not original thought from President Biden, this is why he is a Trojan horse. A Trojan horse that has allowed his policies and direction to be now controlled by folks that he perceived that got him elected. So likely, months before the election, he, he told the Sanders groups and, and the uh, AOCs and the squad and others that, yes, you helped me get elected and I will hand the reins over to you and just do photo ops out of the White House, as I, as in the Navy, we used to call it the road program. As he, as he continues on, on the road, R-O-A-D, retired on active duty, right? So he's still active duty, but really not there, just checked out. Pitfalls await Middle Eastern peace, given several of the Biden administration's recent appointments. It's not just the decategorization of the Houthis which is sort of interesting in that, as many, many think tanks have pointed out this week, is that if uh, nobody's defending the Saudi approach to Yemen, but uh, the same thing would ap apply to Syria, let's say. Assad, in the way he promulgated what he was doing in Syria, yes, certainly used ISIS as an excuse to perform wanton acts of inhumanity and war crimes. So nobody's giving the Saudis a pass in Yemen. But that's not what this is about. ISIS was a militant Islamist radical terror group. The Houthis, based multiple examples of what they've done in Yemen, are a Shia radical Islamist terror group. And yet they removed that designation. Because the lens of the new left, the lens of the progressive left is that the Islamists, whether it's Iran and their Khomeinists or it's the Muslim Brotherhood via Qatar and Al Jazeera and all of its 
offshoots around the world from Egypt and on, they are the victims. They are the ones that deserve sympathy. So let's look at some of the the leaders, the soldiers on the front lines of the Biden administration's Trojan horse of this red-green alliance, right? Remember, I've talked to you about the red-green alliance, this alliance between the far left and the Islamists. That will show you that, you know, it's interesting. I think we are going to see, and as we're seeing already in the first 30 days, that the Biden administration is going to be more radical when it comes to the Islamists than the Obama administration was. And I think because the Obama administration itself, from Obama on down, were so criticized themselves as being radical and far Islamist sympathizer and the whole the whole 2008 election with Reverend Wright and the alliance with Louis Farrakhan and others that Obama had to try to appear to be more centrist. Now, granted, he, he absolutely empowered the Islamists and they saw within the White House and in Washington a, a rise to prominence and mainstreaming like they'd never seen before. But now, after the radicalization of the far left in the last four years, and with a Biden administration that falsely is claiming to be a moderate coalition builder, you are actually empowering through a deceptive veneer of moderation with a president that's checked out, soldiers on the front line that are as radical as they've ever been. Matt Dust, for example, expected to join the State Department in a role yet undisclosed, has been demonstrably one of the lead anti-Israel advocates in the left movement in America. After the, I think, thankful assassination of Israel's top nuclear scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, in November, Dust accused Israel of terrorism and suggested that former Vice President Biden, once in office, should re-enter Obama's Iran nuclear deal to teach Israel a lesson that terrorism doesn't work. Hmm. That's pretty radical. While working for the Center for American Progress, Dust called Israel's siege on Gaza and the entire Israeli occupation a moral abomination similar to segregation in the American South. The the ADL, the AJC, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center all found writings of Dust and several of his colleagues at the CAP to be anti-Semitic. So these are not right-wing organizations. At the very least, he constantly peddles the occupation canard and uses that term, even though the occupation physically, figuratively, whatever way you want, has been over since 2006. And he commoditizes and deprecates Israel's morally justified war in Gaza as postal rights. He supports, and I think this is the most significant part that shows the linkage of far-left progressivism with Biden policy, is that people like Dust support the BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement against Israel, which actually is an economic movement to try to destroy the economy of all of Israel. Anti-BDS hysteria is a con 
and Democrats need to stop playing along, said Duss, in his pro-BDS stance. And he goes on to say that he opposes Israel's de facto annexation of parts of Judea and Samaria, and Samaria, Israel's ancestral homeland. He also supports ending aid to Saudi Arabia, but yet wants to open aid to Iran. Similar to Bernie Sanders. Let's look at another appointee, Hadi Amar. Hadi Amar is a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Israeli-Palestinian Affairs in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs within the State Department now. He was the founder and director of Brookings Doha Center, the Qatari branch of the Brookings Institution. Ding, 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 ding. Leading, leading advocates for the Muslim Brotherhood globally. Now he sits Deputy Assistant Secretary for Israeli-Palestinian Affairs. Hamas is just cheering, ladies and gentlemen, cheering. In 2014, the New York Times reported that Qatar's government was the single biggest foreign donor to Brookings. Hamar seems directly opposed to many of Trump's Middle Eastern accomplishments. Rather than call it the deal of the century of the Abraham Accords, Hamar wrote an article opposing the peace plan and imploring Trump and Israel to instead make peace with Hamas. Surprise, surprise, that that would be the position of a Muslim Brotherhood advocate. And surprise, then Biden in his first few days already reopened funding to the Palestinian Authority through the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. Next appointee, Avril Haines, the Director of National Intelligence. He signed a letter from far-left J Street calling for Democrats to adapt a platform that opposed Trump's deal of the century and suggested that the platform should include clear opposition to ongoing occupation, settlement expansion, any form of unilateral annexation of territory in the West Bank. We're starting to see a theme here that many of the leading appointees of the Biden administration not only supported Obama's Iran deal, but want to basically support Hamas's positions. Susan Rice, who was shamed by her bizarre interviews that happened after the terror attacks on our consulate in Libya and Benghazi. She's now been appointed the director of U.S. Domestic Policy Council. Having no real f- domestic policy, she was brought in now as another Obama holdover to go from the foreign policy positions to now domestic policy lead with her liaison with the Hill. She wanted, I'll remind you, that she wanted Obama to publicly weigh in on the trial of Egyptian President Muslim Brotherhood leader Mohammed Morsi, which even Kerry disagreed with and would have undermined U.S. ally President el-Sisi. She called bin Zayed, the president, crown prince of the Emirates, and got him to stand down military plans plans during his fight against Iranian proxies in the Yemen civil war. 
She opposes Israel's inalienable right to apply sovereignty to Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley. Working next to her now is Rima Doden, another appointee, deputy director of the White House Office of Legislative Affairs. She was affiliated closely with CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, a Muslim Brotherhood legacy group, a victim grievance group that radicalized so many Muslims. And she is clearly sympathetic to the Islamist worldview. She comes from Senator Durbin's office where Chief of Staff Zogby, the son of Jim Zogby at the Arab American Institute that was so closely affiliated with so many Middle Eastern monarchs and governments and Islamists with Embassy Row in Washington. And she also supports the BDS movement and participated in numerous pro-BDS demonstrations while in college. Clearly, a leading sympathizer with the Islamist movement, now part of the Obama, part of the <laughs> Biden administration, Obama 2.0, if you will. How about Maher Bitar, the senior director for intelligence at the National Security Council? While at Georgetown, he was a leader of the Students for Justice in Palestine. SJP, according to the JCPA, is an extremist organization that maintains affiliations with Arab and Islamic terror groups, is overtly anti-Semitic, incites hatred and violence against Jewish students, and rejects the existence of the State of Israel on any borders. Northeastern SJP's faculty advisor, for example, told SJP members to carry the label anti-Semite as a badge of honor. Nobody can argue that SJP is a pretty radical group. You need to look at their verbiage and what they've said about Jews and how closely they work with the far left. So these appointments and so many others should lay out exactly what we're dealing with when we're talking about the Trump, about the post-Trump era. And unfortunately and sadly, unless we begin to shine a light, the antiseptic of sunlight on this, we're going to start to see a threatening of the stability that the Abraham Accords brought, a threatening of the stability that the maximum pressure campaign against Iran brought, a threatening of the stability that the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem brought that they said was going to bring terror and in fact brought stability because we recognize for the first time Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And I can tell you if Biden retracts that, don't let anybody tell you that he's a unifier. He is a Trojan horse who's asleep at the wheel while the Islamist radicals are now taking over American policy in the Middle East and domestically. Oh, and meanwhile, Speaker Pelosi seems to be unhinged. Speaker Pelosi has now taken a congresswoman, Ilhan Omar, who really had no right and no, no place being on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I've talked about this multiple times before. She shouldn't even be able to get a, a, a security clearance to get that information based on the fact that she's identified multiple times and felt that our troops are terrorists. She takes the Islamist view first and then later sort of plugs in lip service about America. Her primary 
frame of reference is what helps Iran. Her primary frame of reference is what helps the Muslim Brotherhood, what helps Islamism, and how America should apologize and how America should be on the defensive and advancing the empowerment of the Khomeinists, the empowerment of all those who are against America while she wants to, and again, you you know for a fact that I'm not pro-Saudi and their Wahhabism, but I'm also for balance when it comes to fighting Islamism and that the viral Islamists from the Khomeinists of the Brotherhood are a greater threat than the monarchs are globally. But ultimately she's been so easily critical of Saudi Arabia and yet so silent when it comes to being critical of the Islamists in Tehran or in Qatar. And yet she was just raised this week to a position of leadership in just her second term now as vice chair of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee. That's an embarrassment. A complete embarrassment. And I can tell you as a Muslim it's an embarrassment because the lens through which she looks at foreign policy is not one that is in American interests. I served on the USS El Paso in Operation Restore Hope in Somalia. And in 2017, just a few years ago, in speaking to her colleague in Minnesota, her senatorial colleague in in, in Congress at the time, she told him that when he was talking about the anniversary of the act of terror against American troops that happened in Mogadishu, she said, no, the biggest act of terror in Mogadishu was done by American troops against Somalis. That's what she tweeted. That's what she said publicly to her million followers. And now we've elevated this radical politician who has also tweeted out grossly anti-Semitic things, tweeting out tropes of follow the Benjamins and other things that are anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and anti-Semitic in her opinions, and yet has no accountability to it. And yet last week we seem to have spent the entire, there were days spent in which Majority Leader McCarthy, I'm sorry, Minority Leader McCarthy was making amends about this congresswoman out of Georgia, I think, who was a QAnon supporter and had all her committee positions stripped. And this is not a whataboutism. This is about hypocrisy. Yeah, the QAnon stuff is uh, a bit nutty at times, if not often. And her statements about 9-11 and elsewhere were pretty offensive. And you really can't really qualify them. I say, oh, it was before she got elected, whatever. Republicans moved and had her removed. She no longer has any committee assignments and actually relished in it, which is sort of bizarre, isn't it? And yet Ilhan Omar is being rewarded and elevated for having positions that I find actually in a global sense of security when her constituency is 
Islamists that are hundreds of millions of people a little more of a threat than the, 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 the few little enclaves of QAnon around the United States. This is the political environment that the Biden Trojan horse has created. And speaking of anti-Semitism, for those of you who want to take some of the words and my opinions about Ilhan Omar, it's going to be hard for you to say that uh, I'm anti-Muslim, right? Because I love my faith. I love my scripture but I'm trying to bring it in the 21st century, right? In my interpretation and advocate against the theocrats, which I believe Ilhan Omar is the tip of the spear of. But there are Muslims out there that don't view things the way through the lens of the anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism that is Ilhan Omar and the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the Islamic Society of North America and all of those that have become empowered through the Obama-Biden legacy. This week there was a fantastic letter from Omid Safari, an Iranian expatriate who escaped as a political refugee and now lives in the Netherlands. And he wrote about how he was taught to hate Israel and Jews systematically in Iran, but then he watched Schindler's List. I want to read you a few excerpts of his letter, and I think you can start to see how well, you know, one of the things that amazes me is on the one hand, you talk to you talk to families that escaped Syria, that escaped Iran, Saudi Arabia, and escaped the oppression of so many of these Muslim-majority countries, and they come here and they say, oh, those medias are state-run, they're just f- full of propaganda, you can't believe them. But yet, year after year of being indoctrinated by it, they absorb some of the messages of those medias. And yet when you push them to talk about evaluating that media, they'll say that it, it, as bad as Western media is, for which many of us even say that live here, right? The, the, the state media of Syria, of Iran, of Qatar, Al Jazeera, etc., is a million times worse because it is state media. It's not free press. But yet they internalize the ideas that those governments want them to because that is human nature. When you hear something over and over, a lie becomes a truth. To Safari, when he came to the Netherlands, he said Spielberg's movie undid decades of lies and inspired him to visit Auschwitz and taught him that the truth will always eventually come to light. He said, I'm an Iranian born in Iran one year after the Islamic Revolution in 1980. I spent my entire childhood there and was schooled in its educational system, which is designed by an extremist Islamic cult known as the Islamic Republic of Iran. Throughout those years and up until today, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel dogma pervaded the society and was taught in all school and university textbooks. During the four decades of the Islamic regime in Iran, the term occupier had always been used as a synonym for Israel on television, radio, press, and even movie channels. Ding, ding, right? This is the people that Biden appointed are saying the same thing, right? For decades, the idea, Safari goes, the idea of destroying Israel has been presented as a religious national duty for all Iranians. 
right? So he's saying this, and yet the left in America wants us to believe that death to Israel is simply a metaphor that doesn't mean anything. It's just what they say, but it doesn't mean much, as some of the Iranian apologists say here. Safari here is openly saying that that's, that's nonsense as a Muslim. I come from a country where many streets are named after terrorists who have killed Israelis. Electronic signs counting down the days to Israel extermination have been erected in the streets. Government officials regularly set Israeli flags on fire alongside the American flag at public events and ceremonies. At the entrances to universities, government offices, the Israeli flag is painted on the asphalt so that people can step on it. Billions of dollars are spent annually on regime propaganda against Israel and support for terrorist groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas. Most importantly, in government propaganda, the Holocaust has always been portrayed as a historical lie. That's the Iranian propaganda of their state media. Ahmadinejad constantly referred to the Holocaust as a historical lie. Safari goes on that it was fabricated to justify the creation of the state of Israel in international forums. And many Iranian leaders have done the same thing. And he goes on to say, this is the key. Given the repetition of this message, it's only natural that Iranians like me who were born and grew up going to school and university during the reign of the Islamic Republic have a negative view of Judaism, Israel, and the Holocaust, or at best have no opinion on these topics. And then he was imprisoned multiple times because of his political activities as a reformist. He left Iran, went to Beirut to apply for asylum, with the UN High Commissioner on Refugees. It was during his time in Beirut that he accidentally bought a DVD, accidentally, of a movie by Steven Spielberg called Schindler's List. The story of a German businessman named Oskar Schindler during the Nazi occupation of Poland by setting up a factory at a great expense and recruiting Jews living in the city of Krakow, he was able to prevent them from being sent to the Auschwitz death camps, saving the lives of many Jews. He watched it many times, and he promised himself that he'd travel to Poland before he died to take a closer look at what actually happened in Auschwitz and Birkenau. He traveled to Krakow, and Safari talks about how in a three-day trip, and he witnessed the bitter depths of what happened to the Jewish people and the inmates of Auschwitz. He felt that Oscar was with him. On the second day of his stay, he visited Auschwitz. The atmosphere and the facts of the Nazi atrocities against the Jews and other prisoners were so horrible that he was depressed and sad for a long time after his return. He discovered that the truth always manifests itself. And it can be undeniable. Today, his respect for Israel and its legitimacy shows all that the Islamic Republic of Iran has utterly failed. And I think if a movie can change one man like it did Safari, and like he so eloquently writes in his letter, I think we can change the hearts and minds of Muslims all over the world to realize that they're propagandists of their states they're theocrats, that political Islam is the cancer that needs to be defeated and it uses the other, be it America, be it Jews, be it Christians, 
be it Baha'is, be it atheists, be it anyone who is not Muslim, a demon or reformists that are within the Muslim community that are seen as traitors. It demonizes the other in order to deflect from the supremacism and oppression and fanaticism that is political Islam. He ends and he says, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you, Amid Safari, for reminding us that Muslims can be open-minded, that they can be anti-Islamist, and they can support the freedom of the Jewish people for religious freedom, away from the oppression of anti-Semitism and hate and bigotry, that we Muslims are not victims, but rather often the Islamists are perpetrators of hate against Jews and against the other. Thank you for being with me again this week. We had so much to cover, so much to talk about. And again, if you're looking for a voice of freedom, patriotism, love for the West, hate against political Islam and its ideas of theocracy, and yet a love for my faith, this is the place to come to. Tell your friends about Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-G-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, or at Reform This Radio. And tell about our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all over. This is yours faithfully, Zudi Jasser. We'll be back next week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you.